Uh, The Bible reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. If you have your own Bible, you can turn there, otherwise it's in the leaflet or on the screen. Uh, And just before the passage that we're reading, Paul has said that uh, the Galatians have been called to be free, but they shouldn't use that to indulge the flesh, but rather to serve one another. And that just helps us make sense of the beginning from verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Good morning, everybody. Shall I move this? (laughs) Who are you? That's the question, I think, that is in this passage today. What sorts of labels, perhaps, are important to you that you might use to describe yourself to somebody else? Here's a bunch of examples. Are you an Aussie or Chinese, South African, Kiwi? Are you a Crow supporter or Port? Or does it, is it about the codes, AFL, NRL, rugby, soccer, something else? Do you vote Liberal or Labor or Greens? Are you really supportive of Donald Trump or do you hate the man? Are you a tradie, or are you a professional? Are you a scout, or police, or army? Are you black? Are you Asian? Do you go to Uni Adelaide, or do you go to Uni SA, or to Flinders? Are you progressive, or are you conservative? Do you have good taste in music, or fashion, or food and drink? Are you a feminist, an environmentalist, a vegan? Are you pro-vaccination or vaccine hesitant or anti-vax? Who are you? I think all of these and many more things are common ways that Australians today, they feel pretty strongly about. These things are important to who people are. And all of these and more are part of who we are here in some way as well. Thinking of yourself in these ways is as much describing what you're not as it is in describing what you are. And when we start doing that, it's really easy to find ourselves looking down 
at those who are not like us. And that is what Paul calls the desires of the flesh, or some Bibles will say the desires of the sinful nature. And the world out there is torn apart by the desires of the flesh, torn apart by conceit and by competition and by antagonism between people who are not like each other. Tragically, this happens in the church all too often as well. After all, that's why there are so many denominations these days. The desires of the flesh could be manifesting in our inner attitudes, and the desires of the flesh can manifest in our actions. Tradies think professionals are aloof. Professionals think tradies are simple. Feminists grow to detest men. Environmentalists value animals more than humans. Soldiers snivel at civvies. Conservatives think progressives are naive. Progressives think conservatives are cruel. Sandstone uni students make arrogant, snide jokes about all the rest. Footy fans get into vicious brawls with each other. Hipsters become snobs. Aussies, or white Aussies, end up bashing every Lebanese person in Cronulla or spitting on everybody who looks Asian because of a pandemic. I could go on. <clears throat> and some of these examples are more or less benign than others. In most cases, though, it's not the identity itself that is the problem. It's when it turns into conceit and provocation and competition, which it so very easily does for all of us. It's when it sows division. That's what Paul calls the desires of the flesh. And when we gratify these desires, sinfulness of all sorts overflows. But if you have placed all your faith in Jesus Christ, none of those other things are who you really are. You have been set on a different path because Jesus has loved and died for you. That's from chapter 2, verse 20. He has made you right in God's sight, chapter 2, verse 16. You have inherited the blessings that were promised to Abraham, chapter 3, verse 29. You have been set free, chapter 5, verse 1. And the Holy Spirit plays a big part in all of this, a big part in who you really are. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you received the Spirit of God and he's continually giving it to you. Chapter three, verse two. You are an adopted son of God, which means you share in the Spirit of Christ. Chapter four, verse four. You are not children of the flesh, but children of promise and spirit. Chapter four, verse 28. And then we come to chapter five. You walk by the Spirit. Verse 16, you are led by the Spirit. Verse 18, you keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 25, all of this is who you really are. All that other stuff might be in there too, but people filled with the Spirit do not let it cause division and strife and enmity because the Holy Spirit breaks down barriers and unifies people who might be different to each other in every other way. But the flesh and the spirit are in conflict with one another. Verse 17. And each of us feels this all the time. Thinking and feeling and 
acting divisively comes so easily. The sinfulness that comes with it is so natural to us. So if I'm struggling with sin, do I really have the Spirit? And connecting that with the desires of the flesh, if my political convictions or social views or sporting loyalties or economic situation causes me to resent or suspect or hate my fellow Christian or anybody else for that matter, do I really have the Spirit? Paul wants Christians to recognize what the Spirit is like and have confidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within them. So to help us understand, he paints a picture of the acts of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, and then he does the same for the fruits of the Spirit in verses 22 to 25. So that's basically how we're going to split it up and come at it this morning. So let's get into it. So first, the desires and works of the flesh. Are you anxious that maybe you're actually gratifying the desires of the flesh rather than keeping in step with the Spirit? We might wonder about this because we're far from perfect. We don't have a single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. There's just lots of other things that matter to us. So we can wonder sometimes if we're actually idolaters. We wonder if we have the balance of all of these things right with Christ right up there on top. And then sometimes we just sin and we sin badly. So how do we know? How do we know we have the Spirit? This passage has two answers to that. The first answer is the very fact that you are struggling with this in the first place. People who are gratifying the desires of the flesh are not struggling with this question. People who are filled with God's Spirit struggle with it all the time. Verse 17 says, the flesh and the Spirit are in conflict with each other. And this keeps you from doing what you want to do. Until Jesus returns to make all things new and to give us pure, resurrected bodies, this struggle is real for Christians. We have a divided nature. Sinners who are saved. New creations, but not finished creations. We are in the world, but not of the world. And this world that we are in, at this moment, actually belongs to Satan. We have been redeemed from slavery to him, but we are still in this world for now. And Satan will use even our own flesh against us, if he can. In Romans 7, Paul says this, he says of himself, he says, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And a few verses later, he explains what's going on with that. He says, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. If I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. That's what he says about it. Are you struggling with sin? Brothers and sisters, you are only struggling because the Spirit of God is in you. This can be really hard to live at times, but please don't let it cause you to seriously doubt 
God's goodness to you in Christ and his work in you through his Holy Spirit. Because actually there's a worse case. You may stop struggling. You may find one day that you no longer hate sin. And that is when we should be really concerned. As to dealing with sin though, the situation, it's not futile. If you haven't already, you might start by bringing it into the light. That's what John chapter three says we should do. You could share it with a close friend or with one of the church leaders you trust. There are practical ways to move forward and help is available, no matter what it is that you personally happen to be struggling with. But what about the crippling guilt and shame that sometimes comes along with sin? These are soul-destroying forces. And so, this might be news to some here today, but you can put those aside. I want to encourage you to put guilt and shame aside. Don't confuse them with the sin itself, because they're not actually the same thing. You can hate sin without allowing guilt and shame to take hold in your heart. Paul says it is no longer he himself that does what he hates, it is sin living in him. That's a complex picture. Part of the picture is that our weaknesses and our brokenness in this world gets weaponized against us by Satan. This isn't easy because guilt and shame, they're such intimate, personal experiences. But I just want to encourage you to deny Satan this power over you. Keep hating sin, keep calling it what it is, keep fighting it practically and prayerfully. But I think the danger might be that some of us think that if we aren't actually filled with guilt and shame about our sin, then we don't really hate our sin. It's not true. Those are not the same things. Please put aside guilt and shame because Christ has set you free. So that's the first answer. And the second answer from Paul is the list of the works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21. So let's turn to that and see what's going on there. It's long, it's daunting, and it's not even complete. It finishes with, and the like, as though there's heaps more that Paul could have mentioned. Let me reread it for us. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Do you hear that and think you've definitely done some of these things recently? Maybe for you the gears of self-justification kick into action. We can think, look, I was a little bit jealous or angry or ambitious, but I'm not doing orgies and witchcraft. We think, surely these aren't all the same in God's eyes, there must be a relativity here. Or actually, maybe you are embroiled in sexual sin or in addiction and indulgence. You know what though? It doesn't matter. Because what this is is not a checklist. It's not a measuring stick. How much of this letter has Paul spent decrying the law? 
He is not going to be coming up to us now and laying down a new law. Let me make one thing pretty clear before I explain what's going on here. Don't do these things. They are bad. We all know this. If you don't think this stuff is a problem, you're in a lot of danger. Paul says in verse 21, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Christians can live as though doing some of this stuff isn't a big deal. Paul's pretty clear. It's a big deal. In fact, that's probably why this list is here in the first place, because Paul knows that the church in Galatia is falling prey to these destructive and divisive ways. Okay, so let's just be clear about that, but then let me reassure you, if you do slip up, you don't get banished from the kingdom of God, because it's not a checklist. This is about who you are. The problem isn't if you slip up, it's not even if you struggle quite a lot sometimes, because remember, we just talked about how people, only people with God's spirit, struggle in the first place. So this is about whether these things are your whole way of life. Verse 21, those who live like this. When I was 18, back when I was at uni, and long before I knew Jesus, a decent amount of our energy, from pretty much Thursday through to Sunday, went into going out into the city at night to hook up. And the places we did this were wretched. Think Hindley Street. King's Cross, Fortitude Valley, or the uni bar on the big midweek night. And now we and everybody else who were involved in this lifestyle were doing it of our own free will. But our behaviour, the behaviour of everyone, it was demeaning, it was crude, it was predatory sometimes. Those first items on Paul's list Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, tick, tick, tick. But here's the thing, we didn't struggle with it. It was who we were. The whole ritual of this was perfectly natural and we were not going to inherit the kingdom of God. The issue isn't the behaviors themselves, although in this case, let me reiterate, this stuff is bad. The issue is that this lifestyle showed that we did not belong to Christ. In Galatians, Paul probably has in mind with these, with these first few ones, the pagan religions, sometimes those involved shrine prostitution or fertility cults. But let's not be deceived, the lifestyle I used to live wasn't much different from that. Sex is the goal of life. Sex is the organizing principle of life. Sex is sacred. There's a lot of that in our culture these days. Jumping to the end of Paul's list, you might think that orgies from verse 21 belongs in this section too. But actually what that's referring to is um, the, the drinking parties that the Greeks and Romans used to have. Think lavish banquets. Think hedonism, indulgence. That's why it's grouped with drunkenness. And back in the day, this was a pretty natural part of uh, my lifestyle too, which is nothing new. Listen to this. This is from a fourth century BC play about the god of wine. And the god of wine, Dionysus, he's describing drinking. He says this, 
For sensible men, I prepare only three drinks. One for health, the second for love and pleasure, and the third for sleep. After the third one is drained, wise men go home. The fourth drink belongs to bad behavior. The fifth is for shouting. The sixth is for rudeness and insults. The seventh is for fights. The eighth is for breaking the furniture. The ninth is for depression, and the tenth is for madness. Ten drinks, huh, Dionysus? I think that might be maybe half of what a huge number of Australian university students get up to on the average Friday night, speaking from experience. But the ancient Greeks and the modern Aussie binge drinking party boys, they aren't fighting this. It's not a struggle. Pride in these exploits is far more common than shame. It's who I was, it's who they are, and that's why they aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. Let me pause for a moment. I've shared a little of my life before Jesus. I want to be clear about something. This lifestyle was killing me. It was destroying every relationship in my life. It was destroying my health. And it frequently involved dangerous, idiotic decision-making that could have crippled or killed me any number of times. It's only a kindness of God that it didn't. It was a life of darkness, and I was a slave. I could never have gotten out of it on my own. But God is good. And I do just want to say again, if you're struggling with some of this stuff, if you slip up, even badly sometimes, this is not the law. This is not a checklist. Christians will struggle. But it's not who they are. Okay, what about the rest of the list? Well, there's idolatry and witchcraft. And that's aimed pretty squarely at kind of really obvious pagan religion. So um, some people group it up with the, that sex cult stuff at the start. Where Marin is from in southern Africa, witch doctors are actually pretty common. They dabble in demonic forces and they are sought after to heal and enrich or to curse and destroy. And many a Christian in that part of the world doesn't realize that continuing to consult with a witch doctor is a huge problem if you're following the one true God. In our part of the world, we might ask what we give effort and money to that we think will bring us blessing. Career, education, investments, diet and exercise, actually any form of self-improvement, because that's a lot of what our modern culture is on about and it comes in a thousand different forms. There's a bit of a gray area here, a bit more gray than witchcraft. Unless any of these things are winning the affections of your heart, then this is not a gray area. Unlike witchcraft, these sorts of things might be fine as a moderate part of your life, but if for you specifically, and so I'm not talking generally here, I'm not talking about any of these things in general, but if for you any one of these things is, is obsessive, tends towards obsession, I would recommend that you reject them as completely as you would reject witchcraft. Change your career. Drop out of your degree. Liquidate your assets and give some of it or all of it away. 
cancel your gym membership, unsubscribe from that blog or journal, quit that club or organization. None of these are sacred, not a single one. So if for you, any of these sorts of things are expressions of the passions and desires of the flesh, then crucify them. Lastly, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. And we could keep packing, unpacking each of these for hours probably, but let's take them as a group. They're a group of attitudes or behaviors that destroy and rip apart relationships and communities. They're divisive and self-interested and presumptuous. The examples from way back at the start this morning can frequently produce all of this. Some of those types of divisions may sometimes worm their way in amongst us here in the church. But I think there's probably, <clears throat> there's probably examples that are more relevant here in the church. So, do you look down upon other Christians, and that could be in here, or it could be as you look out at another church. Do you look down upon other Christians because you don't like their beliefs about creation? or about Israel and Palestine, or about the Holy Spirit, or maybe, maybe it's their preaching style, or the role of women in ministry, or how they do baptism and communion. Or it might be just what you think about how Christians should dress, what, Christ, what jobs and hobbies a Christian should have, or who a Christian should vote for. In all of those examples, every single one of them, faithful, mature, discerning believers who read their Bibles well, disagree. And that's okay. Let's talk about that, because these are all things that might really matter. Let's also be conscious of the right time and the right place to be talking about these things. And if we can't talk about such things with self-control, with charity, with patience, then don't talk about them at all. Because what's not okay is when these differences become barriers of hostility. What's not okay is if these differences are so important to us that they are generating any of those divisive sins from the list in verse 20. It is never okay to harbor contempt for brothers and sisters in Christ because they are different to us. Watch out for these works of the flesh. So those who gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we've discussed how people who are struggling because they are filled with the Spirit are not gratifying the flesh. The flesh is at war with the Spirit. So let's now turn to the Spirit the fruit of the Spirit. Paul moves on and he paints this picture of somebody filled with the Spirit in verses 22 to 25. And the contrast is stark and refreshing. Let's make a few observations about it. These ca characteristics come from the Spirit, not from ourselves. It is God doing this within us. We can't force it. Unlike the works or the acts of the flesh, these are not primarily things that we ourselves can do, and that's partly because the list 
barely even describes action, sort of inner character. But we do have a part to play, and I'll come to that. But just like before, this isn't a checklist. So don't be anxious if this doesn't quite describe you. It's not the law. Verse 24 describes being filled with the Spirit another way. It says we belong to Christ. Back in chapter three, Paul told us that we received the Spirit when we heard the gospel with faith. If that describes you, then you have become a part of Christ. And Christ was crucified. And that means we were crucified with him. What does that mean? Verse 24 again, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh is no longer who we are. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, that is, since we have believed and we now belong to Christ, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This might mean something like, become who you already are, Ultimately, this beautiful list of the fruit of the Spirit is a description of what Jesus Christ is like. It's something like this. Christ is our master. We are his pupils. So the fruit of the Spirit isn't a checklist for our behavior. It's an invitation to love and follow and copy the master until becoming like him is something that's just second nature. It's a work of God in us, and it won't work without him. That's why it starts with faith in Christ. But we can and we must listen and notice and cooperate. And the church is a really great training ground for this. Why is that? Well, it's because pretty much all of the other ways that humans tend to associate with each other are based on having things in common and getting along by default. It's much easier to be with people when you are like them. That's why workplaces and schoolyards and university campuses and the world generally divides itself up in a thousand different exclusive ways. Compared to this, the church is extremely arbitrary. It is filled with random people who mostly share only one thing in common and that's Jesus Christ. That means we have to learn to get along. It means we have to learn to love each other despite all of our differences. Maren and I used to run a big midweek ministry down at Trinity City. There were maybe 30 or 40 young adults there. And there were a few difficult personality types. Not many, but it doesn't take many. Enough to cause problems. (laughs) And it took a lot of energy to manage these people. Let me explain what I mean by that. Firstly, and most importantly, I mean making sure that these people felt loved, that these people felt cared for and that these people felt like they belonged. Because none of that came naturally for these people sometimes. But secondly, we had to manage the effect that they could have on other people sometimes because it could be quite harmful. That was never intentional, right? It's just that humans and relationships are messy at even the best of times. So. That usually involved two types of pretty frank conversations. We'd be talking to uh, the difficult person, helping them to grow in self-awareness and to be sensitive to how they affect others. 
And we'd have to talk to the people who were affected. Help them to see those people as a brother or sister in Christ and to love them, despite how difficult they could be. Often on the way home from this ministry, Maren and I would allow ourselves to reflect just for a moment how easy this ministry would have been without just that small handful of people. (laughs) But I made a habit of regularly thanking God for them. They were gifts. Because of them, Maren and I, and the difficult people, and everybody else in the ministry, were learning forbearance, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And this is love. And it was producing in our ministry something that we could not produce ourselves, joy and peace. It was the fruit of the Spirit. It was supernatural. Barriers and divisions were destroyed. The body of Christ was being unified. Without those people, this ministry would have been a lot easier and at points maybe even more enjoyable. But I wouldn't trade it for that because that's not what God is doing in the world. It's not what God is doing amongst his people, the church. It's not what God is doing here at Trinity Church Aldgate. And I don't want an easy life. I want to be part of what the all-powerful God of the universe is doing. What about you? Let me make a sobering observation now as well. I've been talking about difficult people, but guess what? Depending on the situation, depending on who's in the room, all of us are difficult to be with sometimes. Remember this because it's a pretty good protection against conceit, verse 26. It'll protect us from looking down at other people. The unity of the church is the work of God and not of humanity. It's a peace and a joy that we want here and then we want it to overflow to the world that we are in. So let's recognize this as God's work, even when it's sometimes hard or unpleasant. Let's keep in step with the Spirit and the Spirit will produce in us all of the fruits in verses 22 to 23. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Teach us to recognize and reject all the desires and passions of the flesh which tear apart relationships and families and communities and nations and peoples in a thousand different ways. Strengthen us when we must battle the desires of the flesh which are in us and which are at war with your spirit within us. Do not let us gratify them Instead, help us to crucify them. And teach us to recognize what you are doing in the world through Jesus Christ and to cooperate with it. And bring forth in us all, in great abundance, the fruit of your spirit. Produce in us love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. We pray these things by your Spirit. 
in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.